Our experience in this industry is what matters is the product works. You keep up with the technology emotionally, which is make the life longer. You deliver them on time, service the heck out of it. And pricing is a distant third or fourth in the value creation. Because once again, these are little things going into big things. What matters is they don't foul the big thing up. They work and you get them there on time. And if something goes wrong with that, you fix it fast. Welcome to 50X. I'm your host, Will Thorndike, author of The Outsiders and a co-founder at Compounding Labs. 50X aims to dissect the anatomy of investments that have appreciated at least 50-fold. We dive into each investment's origins, evolution, and eventual outcome, exploring key themes around long-term value creation, ranging from operations, capital allocation, and culture, to pivotal buy and sell decisions. We track the often circuitous route to exceptional long-term returns and study how that rarest of investment commodities, conviction, gets created, maintained, threatened, and sometimes lost. To access proprietary research and exclusive materials, please visit 50xpodcast.com. 50X is produced by Compounding Labs in collaboration with Colossus. Compounding Labs is a partnership of long-term business builders that invests in elite recurring revenue companies in niche markets. We are defined by a uniquely long-term capital base, a multi-decade time horizon, and a highly entrepreneurial ethos. To learn more, please visit compoundinglabs.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Before we jump in, this episode is brought to you by Tegas. The team at Tegas has built a full company intelligence platform aimed at streamlining the investment research process. In preparation for the 50X series, we actively use Tegas to gain qualitative insights beyond traditional reported data. Today, we're speaking with Alex Wolf, an investor at the Investment Group of Santa Barbara, also known as IGSB. Alex is both a user and an investor in Tegas, which makes him a particularly insightful guest in discussing the business. In this part of our conversation, Alex describes how IGSB became an investor in Tegas and why the expert network vertical represented a compelling investment opportunity. As you say, sort of the ultimate testament to the Tegas product is that you evolve from being customers to being investors. Can you give like a quick thumbnail sketch of how that worked, how, the, how you guys ended up leading the Series A in 2017? It's probably worth giving a 60-second history of the expert research space. So, you know, if you go back to 97, 98, everyone was custom sourcing their own experts. I shouldn't say everyone because most people weren't even doing expert research, but those that were doing it were custom sourcing. And GLG came around with a really cool innovation, which is they said, hey, if we collect contracts with thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of potential experts, you can call us and say, hey, I want to talk to folks who own auto body shops. And we've got a file drawer with 50 people who own auto body shops and we can connect you and we'll charge you a fee for that. That was unbelievably innovative. You have to put yourself back in a world where, you know, you got in touch with people using the yellow pages. You didn't have LinkedIn. You barely had emails. It was hard to get in touch with them. And when you hear people talk about famous shoe leather, you know, you really had to burn out shoe leather because you had to go to auto body shops to talk to them. And, and this was a dramatic time save. And 
the business model was great. GLG on average would pay their experts two or 300 bucks. They charge the investor 13 or $1,400. You don't need to be that great at business to know like that markup works. And GLG built a fantastic business on that and remains today the market leader in what I'd call the legacy expert research space. There was a change that happened over the last 10 years, which is that the ability to access people just got a lot easier. The internet exploded, LinkedIn exploded, just the availability of people on the internet became a lot easier. And so as a result, having a really big network no longer remained as a massive differentiator. And that's the context for when Tom and Mike started Tegas in 2015, 2016, what they were trying to disrupt. And what they basically said was, for the first 15 years of our industry, the differentiation was around who had the biggest network of the best experts. And today, everyone has the same network. And so now the differentiation should evolve towards who has the most interesting data set. And so they evolved to this really fascinating business model, which we have today, which is if we essentially give the call away for free, we make 0% gross margins on the services side, we effectively immediately commoditize that business, but in exchange, we can start to build a data asset. And we think that data asset benefits the direct customer who's, who's doing the call because now they have a transcript of their call. It goes through our really rigorous compliance program, but then they also get access to this massive database generated by their peers. And it becomes that force multiplier on their research. Like I talked about a few minutes ago. Excellent, Alex. Thank you. Listeners can learn more about Tegas and enjoy a free trial by visiting tegas.com backslash 50 X. Now onto my conversation with Nick Howley. Welcome back to our interview with Nick Howley. In our first session, we covered TransTime's first 13 years under private ownership. And today we're thrilled to dig into the subsequent 15 years plus under public ownership. As we transition, I'm reminded how unique Nick is as a guest here on 50X, kind of wearing two hats. So both the longtime CEO and the longest standing investor at TransTime. So while the private equity backers we covered in our last session achieved extraordinary returns, and Stockbridge and others have enjoyed an exceptional run under public ownership, Nick may be the only investor to have participated in that 1993 financing who still holds shares today. With that said, let's dive in. So the company comes public, and I'm curious, first 12 months after being public, In terms of your time allocation as the CEO, how different was it versus how you were spending your time as a CEO of a private equity-owned company? I would say, in total, not as much different as I feared it might be. I was concerned about going public. One, I was concerned it would be a time sink. That's all I do. I didn't like the publicity. You know, you essentially are going to start to live in a fishbowl. Whereas I said, in total, it was probably uh, not as onerous as I expected going in. I would say the living in a fishbowl was probably at least as bad, if not worse. That's clearly a negative. I was concerned that we would lose our culture and value focus. Those were probably my biggest concern I had. And I would say my goal in it was to try and stick to our strategy as clearly as we could try and clearly explain to the public shareholders 
that you should think of us like a private equity business that is operating in the public market. That's how we intend to operate. We don't intend to change our leverage. We don't intend to change our methodology. We intend to stick with our strategy as close as we can. And my other goal was to be credible. It became clear to me very quickly, and this became clear before that, that it's a marathon, not a sprint. You're going to have to deal with the same people over and over and over again. So there's no sense starting down a bullshit path. You're going to get caught. <laughs> there's too many smart people trying to keep track. You're going to get caught. So be consistent. Be honest. If it's bad news, it's bad news. We're all big boys. We can get it. Those were sort of the things I was after. I would say in my time for the first year or so, I would estimate it was a day or two a month. Probably did the equivalent of a day of prep, earning call, and then calls with shareholders afterwards. And I probably did another day a month, either in New York, Boston, Chicago, or something, visiting shareholders. I can't say that the operation of the business changed much. I mean, that was my goal was not to change it much. When you went public, Warburg still held on to a large ownership position, a majority ownership position, which gave you a little bit of a buffer, I guess. I'm curious, how long did it take you to attract the public market investors who really got that PE in the public markets story? As Warburg is over time, post-IPO selling down its position, how long did it take you to find the group that really got it? I would guess Warburg was probably mostly out by 2007, 2008. I don't exactly know the answer, but in 2008, the shit hit the fan with that great financial crisis. I think probably by the time we got through that, we had pretty well established the group that would stick with us. So what's that? Three, four years? Yep. And performance, by the way. Primarily performance. At the end of the day, the how well you tell the story or the gift of gab or any of that over time doesn't matter. How about the board? Was the board any different? And did it function any differently post-IPO? Other than little more careful because of all the rules around a public company. I can't say that it functioned substantially different. The board continued to be, I think Rob Small came on right soon after the IPO. It was three Warburg guys. It was Doug Peacock, my partner, myself, and Sean Hennessy. Sean did a very good job of bringing sort of the public company general process and discipline. And Sean's background, again, Nick, was? He was a CFO of Sherwin-Williams for many years. So the total board size was seven or eight, something like that, small by public company standards. And the majority of those directors, including Rob, once he joined, had some private equity background. And some PE background. And by the way, that was not by happenstance. Warburg is because they were there. But I'm very happy with guys with PE background on the board. They're focused on value creation. That's what you want to be focused on. Well, the other thing is, if you look at that group, all of them were substantial owners. That's right is unusual in public company land. Picking up that capital allocation thread sort of post-IPO, one relates to sort of a source of capital and the other relates to a channel for deploying it. The first is leverage. So you guys delevered down to that four and a half times enterprise value to EBITDA level to go public. Can you talk about how you over, really, if you look at it, it's over six or seven years gained conviction about being able to run the company at a higher level of leverage once public? I'd say conviction. And also, I think we convinced the public world. Yep. Both parts of that. Absolutely. I was never particularly concerned about the leverage level. I mean, once we got past six or seven years, 
But Warburg was of the belief, and I think they were probably right, he didn't want to be too high going out into the public market. Maybe I could explain the process each time we lever up for some reason, or either on purpose or we lever up by mistake because the market craps out on this. We typically go through what we think are some very onerous downside scenarios. We take sort of the worst downturns we've ever seen in each segment and assume they all hit at once, which has never happened. And we say, would that bust us? And it never does. And that usually gives me some comfort. Now, will that hurt the equity holders? It will hurt the equity holders substantially. But if the business is still what we think it is, that's a passing phenomenon. You'll get through that. And we go through that each time we lever up. I explain it to the equity hole. This is why I feel comfortable. If you don't, you don't. But this is why we feel comfortable. I'd say we had a couple of good trials by fire. 9-11 was a trial by fire. 2008-2009 time period was a trial by fire. We had the down cycles, not as bad, as nearly as bad as we modeled in downside, but pretty bad. But I mean, they got ugly for a bit and the company performed fine. Each time that happens, you get more and more conviction because spreadsheets are one thing. It actually happens as another. So what has to happen is the fundamentals of the business have to hang in. You have to, in fact, be able to get the cost down rapidly like you think you can. And you have to be able to maintain your pricing power through the down cycles. And if those happen, at least in the aerospace business, generally, you're going to be okay. Again, you're not going to like the equity, what it looks like for a while, but you'll survive. To double click on that, Nick. So the way you sort of stress test the leverage capacity is you literally look at each product line and you look at the worst it's performed year over year. We usually do it, I would say, on a more macro sense. We take the market segments, the commercial transport OEM, the defense OEM, commercial aftermarket, this aftermarket, business jet, et cetera, and say, what's the worst they've ever done? And try and assume they all hit at once. And being able to service the debt through that. Service the debt through it, not get too tight on the covenants. And again, the big assumption is the structure in the industry holds you can hold your pricing and you get the cost down. You know, you can also lose it that way by just sitting on the cost too long. By the way, everyone being owners is very helpful in that. I've had to deal with these in other situations where you fight forever about why do I have to take the cost down? And this is important and this can't be done. Everybody being the owner really helps that. Look, this is where all our investment are, guys. We got to figure out how to do this. If you took the average business unit GM, and you looked at their stock-based comp as a percentage of their total comp, very roughly, what is it? What has it been? One-third cash, two-thirds equity. And that's how we calculate it. When we award the options, we assume it's going to double in five years. In fact, it's been much more than that. Hence the focus. Hence the focus. And almost anyone running one of our businesses, this is far and away their biggest investment. Maybe we could talk a little bit about the two crises, meaning the GFC and COVID. Yeah. In both cases, the stock got cut in half. Actually, in the case of COVID, it was down 60% in about a month. Let's talk a little bit about, in both of those cases, how conviction built. And let's maybe focus on the GFC first, the financial crisis. But what struck me in looking at that was how active you guys were in this 12 to 18 months around the collapse of Lehman. You did something like five acquisitions 
and paid your first really significant special dividend all within that period of time. So can you just talk a little bit about managing through that and coming out the other side on your front foot opportunistically capital allocation wise? I would say, let me deal with it first on the operating side. When it became clear to us that this was going to happen, that this wasn't just a minor blip in the curve, that something was going on here. The most important thing in my experience there from the operation is get out ahead of it. Don't go into denial, get the cost down fast. So we made our best guesstimate because who knows where the bottom is going to be, but we made our best guesstimate of what we think is going to happen for the next six to nine months. And we took the cost down. We probably took 20% of the cost out in a step within about a 60-day period. And that means you can't listen to too many stories. It's got to happen and it's got to happen fast. Then we'll react. So that's the first thing we got our house in order. We were in pretty good shape cash-wise, and we stayed in pretty good shape cash-wise. And we generally maintained access to the capital markets. There was probably a, I don't know, three or four months when there wasn't much there. I think we pulled down the revolver just to be sure we had the money. That's what we did. We ran the business. We kept running cost control. We kept price activities going. And margins throughout that period stayed in the sort of in the 40s. Yes, that's right. And that's because of the two. Because you could get your price and because you got your cost down. If you didn't do either one of them, you would have lost your margin. Yep. If I remember right, the OEM rates collapsed more than the aftermarket did through that one. In the aftermarket, flight activity, it slowed way down, but it didn't actually go negative. Where OEM went negative, now you get you get a positive mix impact out of that, which sort of overcomes even though we say there's no such thing as fixed cost, the fact is there is a little bit of fixed cost. That mix kind of overrode that as long as you got the cost down fast enough. We felt stable quick enough that we were ready to buy things when they came up. And I can't say we did anything different other than we just had our antennas out and we were beating the bushes like we always do. And things came up and we evaluated and bought them. We felt comfortable enough with our model. We felt comfortable enough that the world wasn't going to hell. And I think we got some decent buys, not fabulous buys, but decent buys. Any of those from distressed strategic type sellers? No, I can't really say they were. By and large, you don't see a lot of distressed things here. I mean, we're buying proprietary sole source businesses with a lot of aftermarket. Unless you get yourself way over leveraged. As I like to say, it's hard to lose money in them. Some people do, but it's... All right. So the other thing that happens in the wake of the financial crisis is you guys pay your first special dividend as a public company. And so I'm curious, thought process around that, you had done one significant dividend distribution while private under Warburg's ownership, as you earned about half of their equity. That's right. But this is five-ish years later. You know, what was the thought process around that? The same thought process we use all the time. Our view is that the equity is the most dear capital that we have. Cost us, depending on what you want to say, you know, 17, 20, 22% after tax. And the debt cost us, pick your number, you know, three, four, five, six after tax. We ought to swap it out all day. And our goal is to get equity returns to our shareholders. We looked, as we always do, we looked at the balance sheet. We looked at the capital markets and we got borrowing capacity. We feel very comfortable using it. We can get it. We can get it at a cost substantially lower than the cost of our equity. And frankly, we aren't giving our shareholders much to be happy about. And we don't have use for it right now. We took the money and paid it straight out. And just to frame that, 
that first dividend was, I think, 16 or 17% of the market cap. Yeah, that's right. It was a meaningful number. What's interesting to me, Nick, is I had the wrong idea in my head around you guys and special dividends. I sort of thought that this was something that you had done regularly under PE ownership. And you picked it up again once public and began to do it. But really, you'd done it once privately. The whole idea is something, which, by the way, is very unusual in the public markets, this idea of large special dividends, really something you evolved once public. So I'm curious, if you pay that first one, and then you begin to get on a regular pattern of special dividends. And the two that I'm interested in are you pay one in 2013 and one in 2014. And they're both similarly 15-ish, mid-teens percent of the market cap. But collectively, by doing that, you take a step function change in your leverage level. Yes. Starting with those two, beginning in 2013, your leverage goes back up to between six and seven times enterprise value to EBITDA. So can you talk a little bit about, was that the result of increased conviction, having seen how the business came through the financial crisis or just- Yeah, combination. We were pretty comfortable before, but we were getting quite comfortable with our ability to carry the leverage and the market was getting quite comfortable with our ability to carry the leverage. I would consistently say to investors that you're not going to invest in a company that services a market that grows 5% real a year and gets 25% return if you don't leverage it somehow. That doesn't work. I think people got comfortable with it. Again, my logic always was that the equity was very expensive. It's not my money. It's the shareholder's money. And I ought to use as little bit of the equity as I can to run the business. When I don't have a clear and present use, I ought to get it back out to them. By that, I mean either an excess cash or excess borrowing capacity. I got increasingly comfortable with it. Sitting here today, you've paid out about $10 billion in special dividends, roughly 400 times the initial primary act. Yep. Kind of extraordinary. And part of that, how did you think about stock repurchases as an alternative? We've done a little bit of stock repurchases, but not a lot. And We've waffled around on that, and I don't know what we'll do in the future. Typically, the issue has been that when we did them, we wanted them to be substantial. I sort of like the no risk, it's done. The advice we would get is you're going to have a hard time taking 10, 15, 18% of the stock out of the market quickly. You're going to have to stagger it over time. And as you do that, then you don't know what's going to happen to the price. And we ultimately decided we liked the certainty. We like getting it done now. We know what we had. The story was done. It was behind us and we moved on. When there are a smaller percent of the market cap, we may think of that differently. But that was the guiding principle. We liked the certainty and we thought it would take too long to execute. Yep. Yep. So sticking with capital allocation, but transitioning to your acquisition machine, under public ownership, inorganic growth became quite consistent. And I expect the M&A function matured a bit. It'd be great to look at a more recent acquisition in a little detail. And maybe an example there is Kirkhill, which was a seemingly small deal, but led to some larger things over time. Do you mind talking through that one a bit? Kirkhill was essentially an Esterline discard. They very rarely sold, but they decided this was unfixable. And they ran a very fast process. If you wanted it, you couldn't do any diligence, just to buy it or not. And the price was about 50 million bucks. We looked at the business. They described it as a 
non-proprietary competitive business. We looked at it and we did a couple of things. One, we appraised the property. The property we were pretty sure in Southern California was worth about 40 million bucks. So then we said, how much risk do we have if we buy this for 50? The other thing we were pretty sure of is they described it as a no aftermarket business with seals. And the only function seals perform is aftermarket replacement to keep the closure tight. So we didn't see how that could be. And they believed it to be quite competitive, but we were pretty sure there was only one or two other suppliers in the world. But we weren't exactly sure, so we went ahead and bought it. We got in very quickly, and the answer was obvious, that this could be a winner. So the price went up. The cost went down significantly. We invested. They had cut all the investment out probably five years ago when they gave up on it. We probably put 10 or $12 million of capital in it fairly quickly, which we don't have to do. But this was a clear, obvious payback and a situation that had to be done. Bob Henderson, who was the vice chairman at the time, and also because we were thinking about this large restaurant business, he went immediately in to run it for six months, along with his day job, and to quickly evaluate the management, which took about 40 days to evaluate. And then Bob got cost cutting moving along quickly. He got capital expenditure program moving pretty quickly, the obvious one. He started to renegotiate the big contracts and the aftermarket pricing, and he took two Transon guys and put them in there, one to be president, after about six months, another would be head of sales and marketing. We divided it into product lines, relatively small product lines that we could give P&Ls for, track them. We had product line managers. We put in a mostly new senior staff, started to track the heck out of quality, delivery, any customer issues, service them like crazy, but you got to pay for that. And it's just blocking and tackling. And by the way, figuring out that what you have is really a probably 70% realistically proprietary. And if you were going to rank the three Ps, Nick, in terms of their contribution to that margin improvement, super roughly, what? And that one, I would say price and productivity are almost equal because there was so much productivity. And I'd say the new business was slower coming along, which it almost always is. It was slower coming along, but contributory. This one was sort of the entree, the amuse-bouche to Esterline. Is that a fair way to think about it? Yes. I would say that also had the classic situation which we see that someone mixes up development and engineering spending with new business. I mean, the fact that I'm just going to spend more, they're going to come. So there was a big adjustment there. Not are we after new business, but we're going to work on things, the one that we can win. And second, if we win, they're not a booby prize. You can make money on them. Yeah. So we were in that and we took a run at trying to buy Esterline probably five years before that. And really couldn't get them interested. They had a new CEO, if I recall, or soon going to have a new CEO who thought they could get it sorted out. We then decided to re-engage with them again. And we looked at it. We looked at what we knew about the mix of products. It was 28 operating units. And this is a business that had been stuck at 13 to 15% EBITDA forever. It didn't seem like it could be true to us based on the mix of products. We also found out from owning Kirkhill that they were just layering on these corporate overhead programs, costs. They put in a multiple group structure that, by the way, we're okay with those group structures as long as there's nobody in them. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> so, you know, each one had its own office with its whole staff in it. 
We decided to pursue it. The previous time, they just blew us off. But this time, they were getting more outside pressure because nothing was happening. So we got some engagement there. But we were hoping we could get it closed without such a competitive process. And that was probably naive in a public company. So it ended up in a back and forth competitive process between ourselves and a couple other people. We ultimately topped it by about 50 cents. If you would have started off, I would have said, I don't think we pay 122. But we got more and more lathered up (laughs) as we went along. And Astralina, of course, was the largest acquisition in the company's history. About $4 billion, public company, 28 operating units. We ran a somewhat similar drill. It was a big enough thing that we had to start biting away. We couldn't throw everything out right on day one. But we could do is replace the management immediately. Essentially, we didn't change anything at first. We took the CEO and the CFO out you know, right away, which they knew it. We talked to them during the process. Bob Henderson went in to be the CEO of it. And all that was changed the next day is it wasn't public anymore. And we put somebody else in as effectively the CFO. We took two Transdime EVPs and we assigned them to the project along with Bob. These were experienced hands. And we set up a special option plan just tied to the Esterline performance against the model, which was, if it worked, was very lucrative. Sorry, against the acquisition model, against sort of your base case. Think of it like a tracking stock or a synthetic stock against the acquisition model. So essentially, if you generated this intrinsic value, which tracked the model, got a significantly extra pop of equity. It worked very well for them. So that gave us the ability to go in and start to take 28 operating units and break it into chunks of seven or eight or nine that somebody could start to evaluate quickly. You know, we had the diligence, but public diligence isn't great. It's okay, but it's not great. And then we started chewing away at it. We started with the biggest units first. Excuse me. We first started trying to assess quickly where we right with the ones we didn't want. Which was a significant percentage of the total. About five of them of a decent chunk of money. What percentage of the total, super roughly? I would guess a quarter, maybe. Not a quarter of the EBITDA, though. More of the revenue than the EBITDA. And we decided to go forward and sell them. Actually, it might have been a little more if we got them all sold. One of them we couldn't get sold because we didn't like the price and we decided it wasn't so bad. We had to give it away. The other ones, we had a certain amount of polishing to do to sell them. So it took probably a year to get them sold, which was, again, was different for us. The other businesses, we went through the normal drill. The first thing got to pretty quickly is there were probably the equivalent of three to 400 people in the corporate structure. And we just started to do that away. There were 150 in the corporate office and we just started the shutdown process almost immediately and got it shut down within about six months. And then the group structures probably took a little longer, but they didn't take a year. They maybe took four or six months. And essentially those at least were somewhat functional. So essentially that was just a push down exercise. You push down into an operating unit Now I got two first basemen, you know, one first baseman stays and one doesn't, you know, and we just push them down. I would say not that many got pushed down and made it. Bob and EVPs wouldn't endorse them. The operating units kind of viewed them as corporate sludge. And some of that may or may not have been fair, but it didn't matter. You know, we were moving on. Then we did the same thing at each operating unit, set up the product line structure, you know, go through the pricing discipline, resize the uh, cost base, which I would say averaged 15 to 20% of personnel cost, typically at least half of the cost. And the rest of it, 
the material kind of stuff takes longer to nip away at. Set up a very structured analysis of the development expenses and try and cut out the programs that we don't think you can ever make money and we're either chasing a technical windmill or the contracting basis is no good. Get it moving. And then COVID hit and it's held the margin pretty well. It's, it has held the margin and it's grinding back up again. You just alluded to the product piece of this. How do you guys think about investing in product and quality and innovation as part of the program going forward? Well, first, in what we're going to do, we tend to be much more interested in evolutionary stuff rather than revolutionary stuff. The aerospace industry doesn't move fast. A new idea can be 15 years or something like that to get somebody to do anything. So think evolutionary. The most important thing here and is well worth investing is you got to deliver on time and you got to be maniacal about it. You got to have product that is technically good. And if there's a problem, you have to fix it fast. Most things we buy are not focused on that. The delivery is bad. They have good products, but they're kind of haphazard about servicing them when there's an issue. Our experience in this industry is what matters is the product works. You keep up with the technology mostly, which is make the life longer. You deliver them on time, service the heck out of it. And pricing is a distant third or fourth in the value creation. Because once again, these are little things going into big things. What matters is they don't foul the big thing up. They work and you get them there on time. And if something goes wrong with that, you fix it fast. You alluded to this earlier in the hurdle rate discussion, but as you sit here today, how do you think the M&A runway looks going forward? feels like there are fewer big whales out there. How do you see all that evolving, looking forward from today for Transdot? I mean, the real answer to that, Will, is I don't know. We're now, depending on the day's stock price, we're somewhere in the 52 to $55 billion of enterprise value. Someday you'll run out of room. I mean, you're going to own the world. There are so, a few big ones around. We just missed on one. Maggot, the Parker Hannafin ended up buying. But I don't know exactly how that evolve. I do think that The most important thing is that you keep a very value-driven, value-creative kind of culture and management team. And if you do, you'll figure it out. Someday, you're going to have to open the aperture. You're either going to have to stay in the aerospace industry and take less proprietary stuff, or you're going to try and stick with your proprietary aftermarket definition and step out of the industry. And we've looked at both of those at different times. We haven't found something compelling enough. And frankly, something has come along we could buy or the option of giving the money back to the shareholders has looked like a different option for most of them. And I think we'll continue that as long as you have a value-driven management that is looking at value and not looking at feather in their own nest or keeping their job or something like that. What's an end game? I guess an end game is if you completely run out of room and you can't give enough money back, you sell the business in whole or in part. In part, I don't think you ever get there because I think the whole is valued more than the parts. So shifting topics here for a minute, as we've seen, you guys have been very adept at navigating crises over the years. And one crisis that we haven't talked about was short seller assault or five years ago led by Chiron. Can you just talk a little bit about what that was like, what it felt like to be the target of something like that? It's a stressful situation. And of course, that's Part of the game is to try and crank the whole stress to the structure and hope you'll pop. And 
clearly one of the things they're after is to destroy the credibility of the CEO, particularly when you're the name of the company at the time, which is easy to do. I mean, it's easy to start flailing around and answering everything they shoot. So I think the things I took from that is one, I did some study into how they work, which helped me. I talked to some of the, a number of our big uh, investors or long short funds. I could talk to some of them just to see how the mechanics work. I think probably a couple of things I took away relatively early, and I'm glad I stuck with, is one, maintain your credibility. In other words, if you don't know the answer, you don't know the answer. If you got nothing to say, don't say it. The other is you don't have to answer them tit for tat. They want to engage you in a public back and forth battle, which you can't win because you're stuck with the truthful requirements of an FCC filer, and they're not. So you just can't win that. So have to be very careful at what you respond to. You have to be careful not to get too agitated because they also are personal attacks. We have a couple in your family and where you live. And, you know, because the whole thing is, is to get you frazzled, get you striking back at them. You may or may not know this, Will. They went through for a while. They had a whole series of articles saying that my son's business was buying companies at a low multiple and reselling them on the trends. No evidence. They just said it. It's just out of curiosity, like, what did that feel like, Nick, around the dinner table in the heat of that when it's first started? Very stressful. What builds stress also through the organization is the buzzword is short and distort. That's what this is. A short and distort is the opposite of a pump and dump scheme. A pump and dump is when you buy a stock, you put out a bunch of fake press releases, stock goes up and you dump it. A short and distort, I'm surprised it's not illegal. And there's starting to be rumors about it. But they do just the opposite. In other words, you buy a stock, then you start to put out fake studies and fake news reporters and then keep driving them down. They'll start spitting these out two a week. And each one will have some kind of outlandish allegation. Some of them you have to address. Here will be a typical situation. You come in, somebody's written an article, says something bad. You can't tell whether it's true or not because you're a decentralized company. Is anything true? So you go into a scramble. You got all the operating units getting information up and you're trying to get it back to you as fast as possible because you're going to start getting shareholders calls right away about it. Is it true that this terrible thing happened or something like that? So you want to avoid the calls until you're reasonably certain, you're never going to be 100% certain, but you're going to avoid the calls until you have a high enough confidence level that you can at least start to talk about it and say, we think this is very unlikely and we've done some research. If it's active enough and you think it's damaging enough, then you start to take calls from shareholders. So you do this and you have everybody running around all day Tuesday and you starting on Wednesday, come back into work Thursday morning or Friday, same thing. Another allegation, start the whole place cranking up again, people up all night, getting all pissed off. And it goes on and on and on for a while. Post attack, stock was down as much as about 30%. What was the path back to normalcy? I'd say a couple of things, as I told you. One is stay credible. So don't let them build up. Don't get tangled up in a lie somehow where you're back and forth in something you can't win. You're stuck with the truth requirement and they're not. So you can't win that. Once we got comfortable. And once we felt like we understood the lay of the land and we're done a lot of the back and forth, we decided to do a roadshow. Because one of the allegations was you have, you're jacking the prices up, you get no organic growth, you're shrinking 10 or 15% a year and you're covering it with these price increases. So we did a roadshow mostly demonstrating our positions on the new airplanes, 
giving some better sense of what roughly might be a price number you could use to deflate and showing the performance of the company against the other people in the industry to show that there wasn't a great disconnect. And I think that sold fairly well. It was getting behind us by July or August. Now, the best defense is, of course, is to keep performing. And the businesses kept performing. Then you can just say this too will pass. Did uh, anything constructive come out of that whole process? Watch the short selling numbers. <laughs> I never paid any attention to. <laughs> now I get it at least once a month. Perhaps we got our shareholder base more comfortable with this. I think we handled it pretty well. And we got through it pretty well. I surely wouldn't choose to do it again as a learning experience. Makes sense. And so talk a little bit about COVID. One of the investors, longtime investor of yours, described it as sort of a worst case living hell scenario. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about how that felt? Scariest market condition for sure. I would say if you took 9-11 even, well, 9-11 was a little worrisome too, just because you didn't know if it would just keep going on. There'd be a series of these things. I would say the 0809 time frame was it was fairly clear to me that this was an economic downturn. It may be deeper and it may go longer than you like, but the world wasn't fundamentally changing. The COVID thing, I simply didn't know how to assess it. You know, we never modeled anything where the air travel cut by 60, 70%, like in 30 days, and then who knows when it was coming back. And the commercial aftermarket is really where all the money is here. So it hits you in the toughest spot. And it was concerning, but couple of principles. One, there's nothing you can do about the market. It'll be what it'll be. You can wring your hands, you can make up spreadsheets, but it's going to be what it'll be. So you might as well make a conservative assumption and get to it. So we made, I don't remember exactly, but these are public. We gave them out. We did it. We assumed the commercial after was going to drop by 60 or 70% and stay there for six months or so. We didn't say we knew. We just say, well, this is our planning assumption. The commercial transport would drop 25 or 30%. It would drop more, but it just can't turn down that fast. And the defense would be roughly flat. We did the math and said, we got to get the cost down radically to do our best to hold the margins. That ended up being something like a 33% cut in real volume when you did that math. So we had to get that amount of cost down. And that's a huge cost to get out in 60 to 90 days. I would say we got the bulk of it out. Some of the foreign countries where they got more notification rules and things like that, it maybe dribbled out a little longer, but we surely got it all out within four to five months. And I'd say most of it in two to three months. Our view there was we'll get it down as far as we can. And if that's not enough, that's not enough. You know, we're not going to kill the company because we're not going to try to get the cost out, but we'll take a deep breath. I think we came pretty close to holding the margins. Not perfect. I think we probably leaked a couple of points in margin, but not for that level of disruption. Not a lot. Just extraordinary, honestly. Yeah. My math isn't very complicated. If your sales are here and the margin's here, if the margin stays there and the sales drop by this, the cost base has to go down by that. Which is, uh, it isn't that complicated. <laughs> now, getting it done is pretty hard, but coming up with a target isn't that very hard. The other thing that concerned me there is, though we had a fair amount of cash, I think we had a billion and a half or something like that. I simply didn't know where the bottom was. And I thought the only way this company fails, to use the uh, airplane terminology, is it runs out of fuel. And it gets in a cloud, runs out of fuel, and can't get its way out. So other than work with Kevin to get this cost moving quick, the thing I did myself then immediately was try and say, how can I raise money quickly? And how much can I raise? And I knew we were probably going to have to overpay some for it. 
as you probably know, the capital markets just froze up for about 60 days. That didn't look like a good alternative. You know, I went around and tried to do the pipe stuff with different big PE firms, and we could have got that, but it was rapacious pricing. And I thought, I don't think I'm that scared yet. (laughs) Fortunately, by dumb luck, maybe dumb luck, and maybe because we had enough staying power to wait, within about 60 days, the debt markets opened back up and we sold a billion and a half of high yield bonds. What sort of a price on that? It wasn't that bad. I want to say it was at 6 or 7%. Amazing. It wasn't 9 Mid-single digits. I was taking it no matter what it was, but uh, access was the issue there. So then we had cost down. At least we thought we were reasonable for what we could guess. And we had, I would guess we had $3.5 billion of cash. It was hard for us to run a scenario where that didn't get us through. Now, you come up with a scenario that says the whole world's going to hell and never comes back. There's never enough money to get you through. But we started to feel pretty good. As a practical matter, we never ran cash negative. Now, that was helped a little bit by, you know, we started to drag down working capital, too. So you've had to navigate a series of crises that we've talked about and have done so successfully within the context of these incredible returns. Any advice to new CEOs about how to manage through crises generally? Any things you've learned that you'd recommend to a new CEO or that you've shared with Kevin, honestly? Honest and fair assessment of the situation is most important. Don't start shooting half cocked. You know, you get one chance to lose your credibility with the organization and an outside, and it's very hard to get it back. So be analytical, be honest, don't deny reality. People are going to figure it out anyway. (laughs) You know, you might as well figure it out and be the one that tells them and then deal with it. You're not going to smooth your way through it. You're not going to talk your way through it. You're going to have to face the facts and and deal with them somehow. This may be a good segue into the evolution of your role in the post-IPO era, but you mentioned you worked with Kevin on this. You were executive chair when COVID happened. And so how did you and Kevin work together to do this? What did your typical week look like post-COVID versus pre-COVID as executive chairman? Pre-COVID, I would say I was sort of doing the job I hope to be doing, which is (laughs) trying to slowly extract myself. You know, the COVID thing, we didn't have any dispute about this. Kevin also, this is far and away the biggest investment he has in his life, and it's been a great thing for him. We went through a couple of weeks of figuring and trying to make guesses and things like that. Then we, between us, just agreed on a number. He did most of the work on getting it done. You know, there were bumps in the road along the way and things we talked about. What about this one and what kind of timing do you think we do here? But he basically ran that trap once we got it. Talked all the time, but he ran the trap. And I took on the one of going out to raise the money. So let's maybe talk a little bit about the change in your role. So the decision on your part to move from CEO to executive chairman, how you thought through succession, how you guys found Kevin, how all that worked for you and for the company, or the thinking and process around that. I would say succession planning has been a big part of our company. It's important to us to keep the culture. And we frankly thought we had a pretty good plan for succession. We had at least two, if not three, Ray Lobenthal, COO, Bob Henderson could very well be, could have been COO. They were almost sharing the job. And another was George Valderez was only about 40. He was probably too young at the time, but not, not impossible. And Ray decided that he wanted to retire. You know, he made us a bunch of money. 
he decided that he and his wife wanted to go enjoy the money they had. So, boom, there went one successor, <laughs> a victim of our success and very amicable. And he stayed on the board, by the way, still on the board. Bob Henderson would have been the next one, but Bob wasn't the perfect age for it. He was a little older than you might have picked. My view on that was academic because Bob also did at this point said, you know, I don't know if I get enough money. I'm not going to move out of California. I don't know if I want to sign up for six or seven years. The next was George. And George, we thought, was probably a little young. But he also had come to work with Transdime right out of college or a year after. And he was pretty wealthy. He wasn't moving out of California. <laughs> so then we figured we had to find somebody. It was going to be a tough job because it's hard. You know, you're going to bring somebody into a fraternity. It's, it's sort of like a successful PE firm. You know, how do you bring in a, someone to run them? It's like herding cats. So we went through a search process. Most important, it had to be a cultural fit, and you had to get somebody that believed in the value creation concept. You didn't want a bullshitter, had to be a hands-on kind of guy. You weren't going to take somebody from one of the big aerospace companies. That wasn't going to work. Key background might have been nice if we could find the guy. And we just did a search, and we came across Kevin. I said in the aerospace business at the time, the only businesses that I believed had a value-based culture were precision cast parts and Heiko. And Heiko was the family, so the family wasn't going to jump ship and come work for us. Uh, so precision cast parts is one of the ones we pointed the head on. Right? Kevin was one of the successor candidates there. So, you know, we went through a process of interviewing and we interviewed other people too. And we did a fair amount of it, of introducing the people, going out to dinner with the different stakeholders. He and his wife were a little reticent to move to Cleveland. You know, I was pretty firm on that. That was sort of a condition of the job. Then we came to hire him. We brought him in. He transitioned in. We split the company into two. We had two COOs. We had he and Bob Henderson. I can't remember what we called it, but he had one half and Bob had the other. And it wasn't a competition uh, like those normally are because Bob... Could have had the job. He didn't want the job, but he was as a big investor. And that's how Kevin came in. He did a fine job. And I want to say, if I say this in time wrong, probably 18 months later, we made him COO. And then maybe 18 months after that, we made him CEO. The biggest cultural issue with him was getting along with everyone else. It was a fraternity, you know, and you had to get them to listen to you. And just saying do something wasn't going to get a lot of these. You know, if you took the seven or eight EVPs, probably five of them were independently wealthy. It's so interesting because having over time studied a fair number of decentralized organizations, what you guys pulled off successfully in bringing Kevin into that role is really hard to do. Bringing an outsider, a culture as strong as trans time. So it's interesting. So you guys targeted search. Precision Cast Parts was one of the handful of organizations you guys identified that had a similar ethos. And then you brought him in as a sort of co-COO, and it was sort of three years between his joining the company before he got the nod. That's right. But he came in clearly with the expectation. You know, each year I talked to him, and if it wasn't moving along, I would have told him. Kevin did a very good job of dealing with that, which was hard and frustrating for him. I told him that coming in, this is going to be frustrating. I mean, I'm going to be supportive of you. Last thing I want to do is have you fail, but I don't know how to handicap it. When that happens, when Kevin moves into the CEO role. How does your role as executive chair evolve? How's it different? How hard was that for you to make that adjustment? I was pretty well ready for it. I got myself mentally prepared. And I would say Kevin did a very good job of managing. He wasn't overly protective. He was sharing 
He would listen. And I think I worked pretty hard not to be overly intrusive. The first thing I did when we made the change is I left. I got out of the office. We had the same CEO. I've been sitting in that CEO office forever. So we have a family office in downtown Cleveland that's five blocks from there, the Translam office. We sort of expanded that a little bit, and I moved over to there. Got out of the place so that everybody's daily interaction was between they and Kevin, not me. I just didn't see how we were going to stop people from coming to me with every problem if I was sitting there. So I think that was very helpful. We set up an every two-week review with sort of a standard punch list. And we did that pretty religiously for about six or eight months. But then as we both got more comfortable, we just did it as it made sense. I'd say what worked best is we trusted each other. He trusted me to be honestly trying to help him in the job. And I trusted him to talk to me when there was a a problem he was concerned about. I'm sure you know that's how things work. Absolutely. You can set up a million rules for things like that, and they don't work if people don't trust each other. And your focus once you were in that executive chair role was capital allocation. Capital allocation. And I would say substantive, if there was a substantive change in strategy, I would say through the first year or so, if you wanted to change out key management, clearly would talk to me about that. He and I did the compensation together for the key guys, but mostly capital allocation. So then four to six months ago, you moved from executive chair to chair. Can you talk a little bit about that? Another step back. Kevin's running the business now. I would say there's a definition of what a chairman does, but it's a CEO decision. The wording is in the contract is that I'm the primary director for issues of M&A and capital allocation. But I would say specific authority now. I mean, if he wants to do something, board wants to do it, they're going to do it. I think as a practical matter, I think it'd be unlikely if I don't want to do it, somebody would override me at this point. But that's okay. And if as CEO, you know, you were full on five days a week, as executive chair, super roughly what would the time allocation have been? And as chair, what is it? Again, very roughly. Executive chair, probably one to two. Hard to say because it, you're always available. How often does somebody call you? I did the earnings calls. I did shareholder visits. For probably the first half of it, I did. There's an every two-week operating call. By the first half, I sat and listened to them. It probably started more and ended up at a couple of days a week or something. And I'd say chair, half a day to a day. Let me ask on the personal front, how have you thought about, given the extraordinary returns over a long period of time at Transdime, how have you thought about managing personal liquidity? Well, for many years, all our uh, worth was in Transdime. So I joke with my wife, for many years, it was 110% of our net worth (laughs) or something like that. Uh, You know, we did start to draw it down still far and away our largest investment. I mean, what we do with our other money is we have a fair amount of money in probably somewhere unequal to Transdime investment in very low risk stuff. Frankly, Vanguard runs most of it in their private wealth thing, mostly uh, ETF index funds, you know, very broadly based. We have Transdime investment. We run a private equity firm out of our family office that my son Michael runs primarily, who you know, Will, that's almost all our money. And we run a private foundation uh, that mostly invests in inner city education, a lot of scholarships, 700 any, that puts out somewhere between 10 and 20 million a year and it's ramping up. So that's personal investment is Transdime, very low risk investment, and private equity investments. 
Pretty diversified private equity, by the way. It's a bunch of direct stuff, secondary positions, some GP stakes. Nick, as you've thought about personal liquidity and achieving that by selling transdime stock from time to time, what's your approach been? I have mostly done it with what they call 10B51 plans, which you set up and then you have a scheduled sale that goes on every month. I'm in no rush to get the money out. I think it's a, a wonderful investment with a lot of legs, but it just, you know, as I get older, it makes no sense to have all your net worth tied up in something. What I generally do is I don't sell options until they come due because frankly, you get taxed 50% on the gain when you do it. And otherwise it can grow as an option. Before an option becomes due, I set up a 10B5 plan that just sells it rapidly over the next 18 months. Got it. And if you feel the stock's been hit, do you slow that down? I could, but I probably will not because it is such a large part of my personal investment that I think I'd be very surprised if I could put it into anything that gets that return. Just as a practical matter, there's a portfolio effect here. In my age, I don't think it should be any bigger. Do you mind talking a little bit about the foundation? How it evolved, what you guys are doing there? It evolved in somewhere around the early 2000s. We felt like we had enough wealth that we ought to try and give something back. And we tried to decide what made sense to us. And both Laurie and I believe that the only thing we ever could give our children that made any sense or had any lasting value was education of some quality, some moral sense or compass of right and wrong or something like that, and some work ethic. You know, the world doesn't owe you a place. And we started to look around and say, where do kids really need that? And what we mostly came to focus on was the inner cities. We looked at, not to get tangled up too much in the politics, but we looked at the public school systems and they're just dysfunctional in many of the big cities. So you take a population of uh, children whose only ticket out is an education, you force them into a dysfunctional system. So that's where we decided to focus. We started in Cleveland and then expanded to Philadelphia, which is where I grew up. And we started with scholarships, mostly getting students out of the miserable situation and try and get them into some private school alternative. Over time, we picked up more and more, mostly at high school level. So going into ninth grade, Nick, is that typically the- Mostly going into ninth grade, coming out of eighth grade, going into ninth grade. And we started with one student that somebody asked us to cover, which is kind of an interesting story. It's a young woman who uh, 15 years ago, so she was like 14, I guess, 15 years ago. Last year, she got her PhD in a microbiology, which is really cool. And she's teaching the college. Stayed in touch with Laurie the whole time. That is so cool. Now, by the way, when you're dealing with that population in the inner city, you don't get that kind of success all the time. So we build it up in Cleveland, build it up in Philadelphia. We then expanded to national networks, which I became very involved in what's called the Cristo Ray Network of 40 inner city schools around the country. I was chairman of that for quite some time, and we're the biggest funder there now in various other networks. We fund math programs. We fund reading enrichment programs, all sort of things. We run it like what they call venture philanthropy. You know, we're not ridiculous about it. We know sometimes everything isn't perfect, but if we're funding the math program and the math scores aren't going up. We stop funding the math program. If we're putting kids into college prep school and they're not getting them into colleges, we stop putting kids there or we tone them down. And we're, so we're quite analytical about it. We have a staff, three and a half people now, full time on it. We've expanded. We probably have 100 kids in college now and we're picking that up too. It's a, a significant part of my effort to do this 
to get the money out. Writing checks is easy, but to get it out thoughtfully and with metrics and tracking the metrics, it's a little foreign to the nonprofit world. It can be frustrating. It takes a little time. How many students a year, Nick, are benefiting from this? Today, there's about seven to 750 in the program right now, getting a scholarship of some kind. And we track them. They have to write reports. They, and I don't read them all now, but, but they have to write reports. We they have a GPA target. Uh, you know, if they're missing it, we ask them the school, what are you doing to remedy it? Now, you know, we're not looking to throw kids out. But if you're, you know, target's 3.0 and you go 3, 2, 8, 2, 5, 1, 2, we'll drop you if you're not doing something. Five years from now, how many students would you want to be? Double, double. We're going to move to a lightning round here. I thought before doing that, we're going to do a snapshot of the company earlier this year when you moved to non-executive chairman. And we'll compare that to a snapshot of the company at IPO. Today, super roughly, the business has $5 billion of revenue. At IPO, that was $435 million of revenue, roughly. Today, EBITDA is about $2.2 billion dollars. At IPO, that was $170 million. Enterprise value today is $52 to $55 billion. At IPO, that was $1.8 billion. Net debt to EBITDA today is in the seven times range. At IPO, that was four and a half times. Employees today are 14,000. That's almost exactly 10x what they were at IPO, 1,400 employees. Total corporate headcount today is 50, and it was about 15 at IPO. So in other words, the ratio of headquarters employees to total employees has actually gone up. It's grown at a lower rate, so that's all very consistent. It's just kind of a remarkable journey since 06. I'm curious if we go all the way back to those original businesses, you know, the original aviation components group you bought from IMO, if you flash forward almost 30 years later to today, how are those businesses performing? those product lines today? You can't get quite as clean a shot as you could then because we put some other products in and things like that. But we still separate product lines out and track them pretty closely. They probably pick up half a point or a point of margin every year still. We grind it out of them. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. 30 years, 30 years later, still have growth in those businesses. Think about the long-term math of creating value in a company like Transdime, having those early foundation stones Continuing to have some organic cash flow growth is a key piece of the equation. That's right. So let's transition to some lightning round questions, kind of looking back over the the whole period here. So when you look back at the last, coming up on 29 years now, what are you most proud of? A couple of things. I feel quite good that I could bring a bunch of people along with me. I think they are uniquely value-trained managers who were able to also train down to an organization, and they became rich. So I feel pretty good. We made, it's not the same as this saying this was 40 years ago, but we made many, 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 many millionaires across the company. And I don't mean just officers. And I'm proud of that. Well, I'm just proud of the size and the magnitude of the business we've been able to build, to state the obvious. I'm proud of the value culture. I think we have been able to build a culture that feels like a very value generative culture as we got bigger and bigger and bigger. The vast majority of organizations that I've had experience with at some point in their size, as I like to say, the organization and culture turns rancid. 
(laughs) (laughs) And it's usually well before 50 billion of enterprise value or 55 billion of enterprise value. I'm proud that we've been able to sustain that. If I had to say what is the biggest value destroying risk going forward, you can't sustain that. You can't get the people and you can't get a culture that sustains that. I think we're in pretty good shape for the foreseeable future. You know, we've reset the management in the main, and I think we've got a very similar crew that have been at it for a while. But those are probably the things I'm most proud of. Okay, so what was the single most challenging phase in building Transdime? Specifically, like when did you have the most sleepless nights? I think I went through a few of them before. There was an airplane crash in... uh, 95 or 96 or 97, which could have just killed us easily. That was stressful. I would say the 9-11 time was stressful. Clearly, the COVID was. I would say for personal stress, probably that short selling attack was as much as the highest stress level I had because you got the whole mix of personal attack, company attack, trying to tear the thing down. Then they drag your family into it. I'd say that was probably the most stressful. And just on that, Nick, was the board supportive during that short selling period? Yes. Very supportive through. Yeah, which was helpful. It's a stressful enough time for everybody that you got to be sure you keep communicating with them. They get, and sometimes some would get a little agitated. You're not answering every, you know, you ought to be out there answering more and be more in the public eye. And I I had a very strong view on that. I can't win that race. I'm not going to do it. What was the hardest negotiation during your tenure at the helm? Realistically, the hardest negotiations I had through the years were all about the equity cut, option cut, how they'd vest. <laughs> Those were the most antagonistic at times or the testiest at times. Most of the other stuff, M&A issues, you know, we'll talk a lot, play a lot around on the edges, but we're pretty value disciplined and I'm pretty value disciplined. I mean, we're going to pay what we're going to pay, not going to go way outside. Those get pretty repetitive after a while, as, as you know, Well, I would say customer kind of negotiations, the big Boeing one comes up every five years can be a little testy, but it's like a play you run through that you get over it all the time. You know, there's some people things that can be difficult, but again, there's only so many versions of them. <laughs> After you've seen them a while, you know how the play ends. Those equity conversations, negotiations with the PE firms specifically, Nick? Usually. And a little bit when we went public, but that was still with the PE firm, but a little bit when we went public. And it isn't very complicated. We're just cutting up the pie and how big's my piece? How big's your piece? You know? <laughs> Or as I like to say, we don't have to get too lofty here, guys. We're just pigs at the trough pushing around. (laughs) It's more complicated than that. So looking forward into the crystal ball, what do you think Transdime looks like 10 or 20 years from now? I don't know. If you can keep the value-generated culture, I think people will figure it out. I can't see that far ahead. I think it is... Probably unlikely you can keep the same play running, same proprietary aerospace significant aftermarket. So somebody, me or somebody else, or Kevin or somebody, is going to have to make the trade-off as to whether we open that aperture up, and if so, how we do it. We're not there yet, but we keep looking at it. We'll keep being very efficient allocators of capital. As long as we can keep a management team that gets the culture and we don't have good use, we give the money back or buy it back. So the other alternatives, I said, are to sell the company in whole or in part. So I'll say again, I think it's most important that you keep this value-generative, value-focused, decentralized culture. If you lose that, I just think you turn into another marginally performing public industrial company. If you keep that, you'll figure it out. How has the 
broader experience building Transdime overall impacted your broader life? And then, you know, relatedly, your investment philosophy, sort of you've migrated over the last dozen years or so to being an investor yourself. Well, clearly gave me a lot of flexibility. I never expected this company to be this big, nor did I ever expect this level of personal wealth creation. So that gave me more flexibility at different points in my life than I ever expected to have. For me personally, I have gotten increasingly involved in this foundation we run. It's getting to be a bigger and bigger part of my life. This year, we'll give out this year, not just cumulative. This year, we'll have probably almost 800 students and scholarships that we're tracking and tracking their grades and tracking their performance and trying to move them along. We're probably funding five different school startups of interesting ideas or expansions, all inner city kids. If you look at that like investing, which is I do, it's time consuming. It's easy to give money away. It's hard to give it away effectively. I think on investing, I'm pretty comfortable that you want to buy good businesses. Bad or poor businesses, you buy cheap. Usually doesn't work out. (laughs) Every now and then one works, but usually no, particularly if you have any long-term horizon. How would you define a good business as an investor? What's the short checklist for that? I would say growth, solid cash flow and EBITDA margins, and a sustainable position. We can elaborate. I happen to like the what I call small thing and the big thing. You know, the value provide is very high to the overall thing, so it's much less price sensitive. All right, Nick, thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation and look forward to seeing you soon. Okay. Thanks, Will. Thank you.